Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 28th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is written by the Journal Editorial Board and they write, How you react to the Supreme Court's eventual decision on student loan cancelization probably depends on how much student loan debt you have. And then an overview for the five-day forecast. Today will be cloudy with some showers with a high of 42 and a low tonight of 29. Wednesday will be mostly cloudy and breezy with a high of 40 and a low of 24. Thursday will have clouds with a high of 38 and a low of 20. And Friday will have sun followed by clouds and, and it will be milder with a high of 44 and a low of 25. And then Saturday after a cloudy start the sun will return with a high of 44 and a low of 23. And our first headline is City Council Tries to Calm Property Tax Levy Flap. The Sioux City Council members sought to reassure homeowners on Monday that they are trying to keep the property tax levy as steady as possible. Councilman Alex Waters expressed frustration over a state law that requires cities to publish a maximum levy notice in advance of their final proposed budget hearing notice. The notice stated that Monday's hearing concerned the proposed property tax levy, which isn't the property tax levy the city is proposing. City staff plan on presenting the final budget to the council for approval on April 17th. This is probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever dealt with as far as social media and anything that we pass in the city, Waters said. We have to publish the maximum that we can possibly charge for a tax levy. That doesn't say we plan or have ever had any intention of raising the levy to that amount. The notice garnered more than 127 comments on the Sioux City Police Department's Facebook page, many of them from residents expressing outrage over what they thought was a proposed 21% increase in the property tax levy for fiscal year 2024, which begins July 1st. Two men, who did not provide their full names, spoke out against a property tax increase during the meeting. One of them, who identified himself only by Jesse, said his property taxes have almost doubled since he bought his home 25 years ago. We have 200% inflation since 1980. We have 80% of the population living paycheck to paycheck. And you guys talk about raising taxes like choosing turkey or ham for lunch, he said. I'm a little bit frustrated by all of this. When does it end? Sarah swearing in the city's budget manager reiterated that the maximum levy is not a not, is a not to exceed number. It does appear a lot more inflated than it really is. We did propose a fat flat tax levy this year at our operating hearing, she said. We are waiting for new values from the state to see where we end up, but we don't anticipate the level, levy actually moving up much. In March 2022, the council approved a fiscal year 23 property tax levy of $15.41, which was up from the fiscal year 22 levy of $14.45 per $100,000 of assessed valuation. That resulted in property owners seeing an increase of $15 on $100,000 of assessed residential property and an increase of $88 on $100,000 of assessed business property, for example. 
That's based on last year's valuation, Councilwoman Julie Shainer said at, of the notice. They are saying if your home was worth $100,000 last year, for example, in this year with inflation and what's going on, it's worth $120,000. That publication is based on last year's value and this year's expenses. So if we were bound to use last year's, because we don't know what this year's are yet, that's how much we would have to raise taxes. The city of Sioux City's budgeting process was impacted by a state error that created a shortfall in expected revenue for Iowa cities, counties, school districts, and community colleges. A bill to correct the error passed both the Iowa House and Senate. It was signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds last week. Sioux City Finance Director Teresa Fitch previously told the council during a February 4th operating budget session that keeping the levy flat based on the rollback amount would have a larger impact on residents and less of an impact on business owners. In 2013, the Iowa legislature made reductions to certain property taxes. They also promised backfill or funding to cities, counties, and schools whose revenue was impacted by the cuts. In fiscal year 21, the legislature decided to phase out the backfill. The backfill will be completely gone in 2030, according to Iowa League of Cities. Our next headline, Our Kids Are Not For Sale, Union Workers Warn. Union workers from across Iowa gathered Monday at the state capitol to protest proposals making their way through the legislature loosening state child labor laws. We are drawing a line in the sand now, said Charlie Wishman, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Our kids are not for sale. We are not. We are not selling our kids out to multinational corporations for profit and cheap labor. Our kids are not for sale. The latter became a rallying chant as the union workers marched to deliver letters to House and Senate Republican leadership, outlining their concerns and urging them to kill the bills. The legislation, among other provisions, would let teens as young as 14 to request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies to work as apprentices as part of work-based learning programs and jobs formerly off-limits as being hazardous, including manufacturing, mining, construction, or processing, among others, and it provides employers immunity from civil liability if a child is injured, becomes ill, or dies on the job that is part of a work-based learning program. Republicans who approved the proposals in subcommittee have said the bills would help businesses find workers in a tight labor market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig and the bill's manager in the Senate, argued concerns raised about putting children in harm's way are overblown and that the measure is aimed at updating an old law with reasonable standards. There's language in there for schools and employers to work together to try and teach some skills and to get children out into places where they can become employable and start looking forward to a career, Schultz said. Iowa chapters of employer lobby groups representing small businesses, home builders, and hotels and restaurants back the proposals. Democrats and labor unions contend the measures weaken child labor protections and allow corporations already profiting from widespread use of illegal child labor to legalize their exploitation. They note one of the country's largest cleaning services for food processing companies was recently fined more than $1.5 million following an investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor, which found Packer Sanitation Services employed more than 100 children as young as 13 years old to clean dangerous meat process equipment. 
including at 13 meatpacking plants in eight states, including Nebraska, Minnesota, and Kansas. Children are found to be using caustic cleaning chemicals and cleaning dangerous power-driven equipment like skull splitters and razor-sharp bone saws, according to the Associated Press. These proposals fly in the face of common sense, as well as decades of research showing that hazardous jobs and excessive work hours can damage teens' health, development, and education, Wishman said in a statement. Wishman added the proposed changes also directly contradict federal labor law, which prohibits children under 18 from working in meatpacking plants and bars 14- and 15-year-olds from working past 9 p.m. in the summer and 7 p.m. during the school year. The proposal also would make legal allowing youth as young as 14 to work six-hour nightly shifts in industrial laundries or meat freezers during the school year and even longer hours during the summer months, allowing 15-year-olds to work on assembly production lines or loading and unloading shipments of items up to 50 pounds, and allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol. Everything in our plant gets moved either by a fork truck, a crane, vacuum, or hooks. It's no place for 14- or 15-year-old kids to be, said Sandy Conway, a member of the United Steelworkers Local 105, who works at Arconic in Riverdale near Davenport. Conway said she has two 16-year-old granddaughters and two 14-year-old granddaughters, who she said have no business in that environment. Each of the bills, Senate File 167 and House Study Bill 134, has passed out of subcommittee, but neither has been approved by the Chamber's respective committees. Ryan Drew with Operating Engineers Local 150 and Jesse Case, Secretary Treasurer and Business Agent with Teamsters Local 238 in Cedar Rapids, called on legislatures to get to work on solving problems facing working families and their children, including low wages, wage theft, unsafe work, lack of access to affordable child care, and underfunded public schools. Don't relieve employers from liability when kids get hurt. Strengthen work comp laws that you've weakened because our kids are not for sale, Case said. Don't cut school funding and send our kids to work in the factory. That's the exact opposite of the direction our state should be moving in. Three Sioux City Middle Schools getting new cooling units in $1.55 million project. Cooling units for all three Sioux City Middle Schools are going to be replaced. The Sioux City Community School District on Monday approved a $1.55 million project to replace the chillers at North, East, and West Middle Schools. The three current school chillers are approximately 20 years old and are original to the buildings when they were built or remodeled, according to the board packet. The new coolers will be high-efficiency units and provide better cooling and humidity control, according to the packet. Tim Paul, Building Service Director, said the chillers are being purchased directly from Train, a manufacturing company, through a pre-negotiated state bid and will be installed by contractors. Paul said there is a year lead time on ordering chillers. He said it is a direct swap out so they will be able to install them either next summer or fall of 2024. Iowa Senate Panel Spikes CO2 Pipeline Bill a proposal to restrict eminent domain powers of utilities, including carbon capture pipelines, failed its first legislative hurdle in the Iowa Senate on Monday, facing opposition from both from carbon pipelines and the landowners opposed to their creation. The bill was unanimously voted down by a three-member subcommittee. In voting down the bill, Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, cast doubt on the likelihood of a bill restricting eminent domain powers for pipelines, making it out of the legislature this session. I don't believe there's a legislative answer to this, Schultz said. 
in the subcommittee hearing on the bill. Senate File 346 would have blocked carbon capture pipelines, electric transmission lines, and other pipelines from being granted eminent domain authority to take land unless they receive at least two-thirds of the path of their route through voluntary easements. Companies would have been barred from contacting landowners for easement acquisitions without first getting consent of the landowner. It would have heightened land restoration standards in instances where eminent domain is exercised. The restrictions on pipelines would not have applied to companies that have already held their first informational hearing for a permit, exempting all three companies that have filed for permits to build carbon capture pipelines in Iowa. The bill was universally opposed by utilities, pipeline companies, and opponents of CO2 pipelines. Pipeline companies and other utilities said the rules were too burdensome, while opponents said the restrictions do not go far enough and opposed exempting the three pipeline companies that have filed for a permit already. Schultz and Senator Mike Klimisch, Republican from Spillville, the Republican senators on the subcommittee, said they had intended to move the bill with the intent to amend, amend it, but after facing opposition from all camps, they decided to vote down the bill. Senator Tony Biziagno, a Democrat from Des Moines, also voted against advancing the bill. Schultz said in an interview he wasn't sure of the likelihood of another pipeline-related bill to make it out of subcommittee in the Senate, and he does not think there are enough votes to pass any restrictions in the chamber. He said he was expecting the bill to not move past the committee stage. We don't have the votes for a bill that would address the current pipelines that started under Iowa Code, and that would reverse the rules of the game now, at this point, he said. Senator Waylon Brown, a Republican from Osage who chairs the Senate Commerce Committee where other Senate pipeline bills are filed, declined to comment on pending pipeline legislation on Monday. Absent a change in law, Schultz said landowners opposed to the pipelines should convince others not to sign easements and file objections with the Iowa Utilities Board. While the bill deals with multiple utilities, the CO2 pipeline provisions are part of a push this year to restrict eminent domain authority for the projects. Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator CO2 Ventures, and Wolf Carbon Solutions have all requested a permit to build carbon capture pipelines in the state that would sequester carbon from ethanol plants underground, taking advantage of federal tax credits and low carbon fuel markets. Summit and Navigator have indicated an intent to use eminent domain for the projects, while Wolf has not. Ethanol industry leaders contend the projects are key to the future survival of Iowa plants. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, a spokesperson for Navigator CO2 Ventures, said the eminent domain process in Iowa law currently looks at the quality of a company's easement process rather than a line in the sand by numbers. Arguably, right now, the process that we have ensures that every landowner is given the same level of threshold of consideration, she said. Landowners along the routes of pipelines scoffed at the two-thirds threshold, which they said does not go far enough to protect landowner rights. They told lawmakers eminent domain should be banned for carbon capture pipelines and the bill should apply to pipelines that have already filed permits. I don't know if I should be laughing or crying about this bill, said Kim Junker, who owns lands in Butler and Grundy counties. I think it is an insult to every property owner in this state. 
The House Judiciary Committee is set to consider a leadership-backed bill this week that would stop the Iowa Utilities Board from granting a permit to a company until it has 90% of the routes secured through voluntary easements, among other provisions. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said last week he expects that bill to make it out of the committee. Schultz said he doesn't know whether the House bill would get a hearing in the Senate. A spokesperson for Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford of Grimes referred to a previous statement where Whitford did not say whether the chamber would consider pipeline legislation. Several policies have been proposed on this subject in both chambers, he said in the statement. The legislative process will determine which of those policies have enough support to advance over the next several weeks. Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat from Coralville, told reporters Monday morning he was skeptical the House bill would be considered in the Senate. What happens when that bill makes it over to the Senate? I do not know, he said. I don't think Senator Whitver is going to bring forward any legislation, but it will be interesting to see if that bill even gets a subcommittee. Iowa GOP lawmakers advance bill requiring unemployed to search for more jobs. A year after enacting stricter requirements for receiving unemployment benefits, Senate Republicans advanced a bill that would require Iowans to conduct more job searches to get them. Senate Study Bill 1159 passed out of the Chamber's Workforce Committee, making it eligible for further consideration and floor debate this session on a 7-5 to party-line vote with Democrats opposed. The bill would require a person applying for unemployment benefits to complete four to six job searches a week to earn benefits, depending on the number of job openings published by the state's workforce agency. The more jobs available, the more work searches one must complete. To maintain eligibility for unemployment benefits, Iowans currently are required to complete four reemployment activities each week, three of which must include job applications, according to Iowa Workforce Department. The proposal also reduces maximum weekly benefit amounts for out-of-work Iowans with three or more dependents. Currently, the more dependents a worker has increases the maximum allow allowable benefits. Bill sponsor Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican from Packwood, said the bill streamlines and provides clarity to unemployment benefits, work search requirements, and providing a list of activities that qualify, which mirrors the services and opportunities offered by the Iowa Workforce Development. Democrats and labor groups argue it needlessly reduces benefits and introduces barriers for Iowans who lost their jobs through no fault of their own in accessing a public safety net. Unemployed workers in Iowa now receive 10 fewer weeks of state unemployment benefits under a new law that took effect last year. The law reduced the length of state unemployment benefits from 26 to 16, making Iowa just the fourth state with 16 weeks or fewer of state unemployment benefits. Mothers employed by State of Iowa could get month of paid leave. State employees who give birth would have access to one month of paid family leave, and partners would have access to one week of paid leave under legislation advanced Monday by state lawmakers. The proposal is one element of legislation put forward in a broader health care bill by Governor Kim Reynolds. In the Iowa House, majority Republicans are tackling the governor's proposals on a piece-by-piece basis. A state employee who adopts a child also would have access to four weeks of paid family leave under the proposed legislation. Under current policy, state workers who give birth must first have exhausted all vacation in six days before being eligible for unpaid family leave. The governor's legislative liaison told state lawmakers during a legislative hearing on the proposal Monday at the Iowa Capitol. 
Governor Reynolds is committed to making Iowa the best state in which to live, work, and raise a family, said Molly Sievern, the governor's legislative liaison. As a benefit to better support our workforce and their families, the governor proposes to offer state employees paid maternity and paternity leave. Libyas for two groups, Iowa ACES 360 and the American Heart Association spoke in favor of the bill during Monday's hearing, and both recommended lawmakers expand the proposal to six weeks of paid leave, which is recommended by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. In total, 14 organizations or state agencies support the bill, and none have registered in opposition, according to state lobbying records. The legislature panel of two Republicans and one Democrat advanced the proposal, House Study Bill 201, which is now eligible for consideration by the full House Committee of Commerce. Laurel Homicide Suspects Hearing Delayed Arguments to dismiss charges against a woman accused of playing a role in a Laurel, Nebraska quadruple homicide have been delayed while court transcripts transcripts are prepared and delivered to her attorney. Carrie Jones was scheduled to appear Monday in Cedar County District Court for a plea in abatement hearing in which her attorney was to seek dismissal of her charges because, he said in a motion filed last week, prosecutors did not present adequate evidence during a preliminary hearing to show there was probable cause that Jones aided and abetted her husband in the August 4th shooting death of Jean Twyford in his Laura home. Defense attorney Douglas Stratton had requested a transcript of the February 15th preliminary hearing, and on Friday he asked for a continuance of Monday's hearing to provide more time for the transcript's preparation. District Judge Brian Miser rescheduled the hearing for March 27th. Jones, 43 of Laurel, is charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and being an accessory to a felony. Her case was bound over to district court after the preliminary hearing in which investigators testified Jones had told them Twyford had verbally harassed her for three years and had asked her husband to do something about it. Prosecutors have argued Jones encouraged her husband to kill Twyford. Jones' attorneys argued prosecutors had not shown Jones persuaded her husband to kill Twyford. Twyford, 86, was found shot to death along with his wife, Janet, 85, and their daughter, Dana, 55, in their burning home at 503 Elm Street in the early morning hours of August 4th, shortly after firefighters and emergency personnel responding to a fire at 209 Elm Street and found the body of Michelle Aberling, 53, who also had been shot. Aberling lived across the street from Carrie and Jason Jones. Jason Jones, 42, is charged with four counts each of first-degree murder and use of a firearm to commit a felony and two counts of first-degree arson. Prosecutors have filed notice of an intent to seek the death penalty against Jason Jones if he's found guilty of first-degree murder. His attorney has filed a motion to quash portions of Nebraska's death penalty statute, saying they're unconstitutional. Council approves 10-year garbage agreement with bi-weekly recycling. The Sioux City Council, in a split decision Monday, approved a 10-year agreement between the city and Gil Holling for solid waste recollection, recycling, and disposal services. The agreement will make curbside recycling pickup a bi-weekly event. Mayor Pro Temp Dan Moore motioned before the agreement was approved to not mandate 95-gallon recycling containers and to allow the city to re-evaluate bi-weekly recycling at the end of the agreement's first year. Before the vote, Councilwoman Julie Shaner said bi-weekly, bi-weekly recycling will help the, governor, the 
city go greener. We can reduce the number of trips that these trucks make over our city streets, less fuel. It just makes sense to go one step greener, she said. Both the amendment and the agreement were approved by a vote of four to one. Mayor Bob Scott cast the lone no vote, stating that the agreement is too long and that he thinks it's unfair to tie future councils to a 10-year contract. The new agreement contains a floor consumer price index adjustment of 3% to a ceiling consumer price index adjustment of 5% for the length of their agreement. All service locations within the agreement will receive new solid waste and recycling containers. A 95-gallon solid waste container and a 95-gallon recycling container with weekly solid waste collection and bi-weekly recycling collection will cost households $17.30 per month beginning July 1st. An additional solid waste container will cost $4.25 per month. Residents can opt for two 65-gallon containers, one for solid waste and one for recycling at a cost of $16 per month. We will accommodate to any options that folks need, said Sean McDowell of Gilhalling, who noted that 35-gallon containers would be available to accommodate special circumstances. If we are taking less waste from a home, we want to give them the smaller containers. Then our disposal rates go down. So if they need a smaller container, it's more advantageous for us. Residents will have a two-month window, March and April, to make changes to their container selection. If you don't call, you're going to get what you already have as your base level. We are going to open it up by mail and phone and email. If you want to change your service over, let us know now, so when we deploy the new carts, you get what you want to start. Sioux City Homicide Suspects Bond Set at $500,000 A Sioux City man charged in a fatal stabbing Friday has been ordered held on a $500,000 bond. Magistrate Melinda Wicks ordered the bond and appointed the Public Defender's Office to represent Nathaniel Parker III, 30, who was arrested Saturday on charges of first-degree murder and possession of a controlled substance. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for March 8th. Pa Parker is suspected of stabbing William Harlan Jr., 48, of Sioux City, who was found suffering from multiple stab wounds Friday night in an apartment building at 414 11th Street. He later died of his wounds at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center. Parker is accused of stabbing Harlan in the chest while the two were riding in a vehicle. According to court documents, the vehicle pulled up in front of the apartment building, and Parker pulled Harlan out of the vehicle and onto the ground. Parker and another male male were seen carrying Harlan into an apartment inside the building. Parker was trying to hide in the apartment's bathroom when police arrived, court documents said. A knife wrapped in a shirt was found hidden above the ceiling tiles in the apartment. During police questioning, Parker said he was high on meth and police found him in possession of 0.85 grams of the illegal substance, court documents said. Sioux City mother gets probation for injuring infant. A Sioux City woman who injured her infant son by throwing him at a hospital crib was placed on probation Monday. Megan James, 35, pleaded guilty in Woodbury County District Court to child endangerment resulting in bodily injury, citing, in part, James' lack of a previous criminal history and her ongoing mental health treatment. District Judge Jeffrey Neary suspended a five-year prison sentence and placed James on two years probation. Neary said James had successfully complied with obligations in an accompanying case filed on the child's behalf in juvenile court. James gave birth to the boy on November 15, 2019, at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's. Two days later, the boy suffered skill fractures while in the care of James, who was alone in her hospital room at the time. 
Hospital staff were suspicious of the injuries and notified authorities. After providing several explanations for her son's injuries, James told police detectives she had become frustrated while attempting to breastfeed him and that she had a migraine and wanted him to stop crying. James admitted throwing the infant, who hit his head on the crib and then on the floor, court documents said. The baby was transferred to Children's Hospital in Omaha for treatment. James told Neary on Monday that the child and her two older children are in their father's custody and she has visitation privileges. Her attorney, Billy Oradere, told Neary that steps toward reunification of the family are ongoing. Ashton Mann charged with arson after house fire. An Ashton man was arrested Friday on suspicion of setting a fire that destroyed his home. The Osceola County Sheriff's Office was notified at about 10.30 a.m. of the fire at 533 5th Street in Ashton. According to a complaint filed in Osceola County District Court, David Alvarez Jr. admitted to a sheriff's deputy he had started a fire in the fireplace, then took a broom and started other small fires on the main floor of the house. The fire got out of control and the house was considered a total loss along with all the property belonging to Alvarez and his girlfriend. Alvarez said he did not know why he set the fires, the complaint said. Alvarez, 32, was booked into the Osceola County Jail on charges of first-degree arson and first-degree criminal mischief. Bond was set at $35,000. 16-year-old charged in armed robbery in Lamar's. A juvenile male has been charged in the armed robbery that occurred at a convenience shop on Sunday morning. At around 8.22 a.m. Sunday, the 16-year-old entered the Brew Coffee Shop at 346 Plymouth Street Southwest, displaying a handgun to employees. According to the Lamar's Police Department, the suspect allegedly cut phone lines, threatened and detained employees for 20 minutes before stealing money, liquor, and personal items from them. The suspect fled on foot and Lamar's police were able to track his movement with the help of business and residential video cameras. Officers also investigated several tips which led them to a residence on 3rd Avenue Northwest where the juvenile was taken into custody. Stolen items were recovered and so was a replica handgun that was allegedly used in the commission of the crime. The Lamar's Police Department was assisted by the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office, the Iowa State Patrol, and community members in this investigation. D.C. man pleads not guilty of raping Sioux City woman. A Washington, D.C. man has pleaded not guilty of raping a Sioux City woman he met on Facebook. Derek Coley, 27, entered his written plea Monday in Woodbury County District Court to charges of third-degree sexual abuse and assault with the intent to commit sexual abuse causing bodily injury. According to court documents, Coley had met the woman on Facebook two weeks earlier and traveled to Sioux City to meet her on February 7th. The following night, police were dispatched to a disturbance in the 600 block of Hornick Avenue, where the woman told officers Coley had punched her in the face, forced her to get undressed, and then raped her. The woman was taken to a hospital and treated for a broken nose. Two Siouxland fugitives are captured. Two Siouxland fugitives who had been on the lam since 2020 are back in police custody, according to the U.S. Marshal Service Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force. Philip Pringle, who was wanted by the U.S. Marshal Service for violating his pretrial release, was arrested by the task force on February 13th in Otho, Iowa, a city in Webster County near Fort Dodge. Pringle had been on pretrial release for conspiracy to distribute meth. He had been on the run since October 2020. 
Duran Medina was arrested February 21st after a Plymouth County Sheriff's deputy observed him getting out of his vehicle in Akron, Iowa. Medina, who was convicted of habitual offender property and other crimes in Woodbury County, failed to report back to the Sioux City Residential Treatment Facility as required in September of 2020. The Siouxland Man Wanted by Fugitive Task Force the U.S. Marshal Service Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force is seeking the following person. Travis Barnes, 31. He is 5 foot 7 inches tall and weighs 205 pounds. Barnes is wanted on an arrest and warrant for parole violation. He is on parole for a conviction of possession with intent to distribute meth. Anyone with information can call 712-252-0211 or email siouxlands.mostwanted at usdoj.gov. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. We'll now move to sports with the first headline, Matt Pobareko, Sioux City Explorers pitcher and fan favorite, dies at 31. Sioux City Explorers pitcher Matt Poborenko died on Friday, the team announced during the weekend. The cause of death is unknown, according to a statement posted on the team's website. He was 31 years old. Poborenko, a fan favorite during his career with the team, played with the Explorers for three seasons between 2019 and 2022, appearing in a total of 74 games and 101 innings. The team's statement described Poborenko as a premier closer who collected 38 saves and totaled 153 strikeouts to only 25 walks. Explorers manager Steve Montgomery said last summer that Poborenko was great to have around and a definitely a bulldog type guy when he's on the mound. My kids probably talk to Matt more than they talk to me, Montgomery said of the six foot three closer last year. Pobareko was born in Hammond, Indiana on Christmas Eve, 1991, to Paul and Karen Pobareko, according to biographical information listed for him on the Kentucky Wesleyan College website. He was a pitcher for Kentucky Wesleyan, where he was 9-2 with a 1.84 ERA in the, his final year of 2015, breaking school records for strikeouts in a season and a game. After college, Pobareko spent some time as a pitching coach with the Northwest Indiana Oilmen of the Midwest Collegiate League and pitched for the Florence Freedom in the Independent Frontier League before eventually signing with the Arizona Diamondbacks organization as a free agent. Pobareko put up a 4.33 ERA across three levels of minor league ball for the Diamondbacks and was released after the 2016 season. He then hooked on with the New York Mets organization where he made it as high as AAA Las Vegas before being released in March 2019. After being let go by the Mets, Pobareko signed with the Explorers. That same year, he was a South Division American Association All-Star. In 2020, Pobareko played for the St. Paul Saints and Estella de Oriente in the Dominican Republic. The Explorers did not play in the 2020 season. In July 2021, Pobareko's contract was purchased by the Miami Marlins. He returned to the Explorers the following season. He later spent part of the 2022 season in Mexico. Pobareko said he enjoyed his time with the Explorers. This is where I've had the most fun playing, he said in 2021. Obviously, with the coaching staff and everything, this was a no-doubter for me to come back. I tried Mexico for a little bit. It just wasn't for me. Just the guys here, the guys in the clubhouse and the guys in the manager's office. I just love playing here. 
Montgomery echoed that sentiment in a statement. He truly loved being an explorer and being part of this community. He was as fierce of a friend as he was a competitor. We will miss him as a baseball player, but even more so as a friend. And now for some boys basketball. Heelan knocks off Webster City, advancing to boys state tournament for first time since 2012. After a 7-0 run, Webster City cut Bishop Heelan's once double-digit lead to just three points as the fourth quarter of the Class 3A substate final began Monday night. Matt Knoll soon gave the Crusaders some needed breathing room. The 6-8 post player uh, scored two consecutive baskets in the lane, the last on a driving layup that put Heelan up 44-37 with about six minutes left in the game. The Crusaders went on to outscore the Lynx 10-5 over the next five minutes, with Noel contributing the last two on a put back off a missed shot with less than a minute to play. Noel punctuated his 19-point night as he hit two free throws with a fraction of a second left. After time expired, the Heelan players rushed to midcourt to celebrate their 63-50 victory and a return to the state tournament for the first time since 2012. Big-time players make the big-time players, Heelan coach Matt Helm Han said of Noel, who has drawn interest from a number of colleges. He's been really good for us all year. Noel credited his teammates for intensifying their efforts after the Lynx made their run. In the fourth quarter, we just moved the ball really well, gave it to the people who were open, left them to take it to the hoop, get layouts, kick out for threes, he said. That energy helped our defense pick up, and we got stops. Heelan, which led from the start to finish, got off to a fast start in the first quarter, taking a 10-0 lead less than halfway through the period. Senior guard Carter Kuhl fueled the run with two quick three-pointers, quieting the large contingent of Lynx fans who drove the short distance to Fort Dodge High School. We came out with a lot of intensity and a lot of fire, and we set the tone right away, Kuhl said. We talked all week about having a good start, Han, Heelan's first-year coach, added. A lot of times this year we've had a slow start. It's kept teams in games that shouldn't have been in it. After that, it kind of helped us settle into the game a little bit with all the nerves. These guys have not been here before. Ty McKinley finally put Webster City on the board with a tray to cut the lead to 10-3, but back-to-back -back layups by Sean Schaefer and Noel built the lead back up to 11. A Noel breakaway dunk gave the Crusaders an 18-6 lead at the first quarter's end. Heelan took its largest lead of the half, 31-17, after Bull Chamberlain buried a three-pointer at the 2-10 mark. After a tip in by Jack Larson cut the lead to 31-19, Heelan worked to hold the ball for the last shot, but turned it over with five seconds left. Kuhl followed Conley as he tried to launch a tray with .4 left. The sophomore guard hit all three free throws to cut the lead to 31-22 at halftime. Heelan led by as many as 12 points in the third quarter and held a 42-32 advantage with about two minutes to play after a cool basket. But the Lynx came roaring back with McKinney hitting a second with 35 seconds left to cut the margin to 42-37 at the end of the stanza. Briar Claver's basket of, at the start of the fourth quarter made it a three-point game, the closest the Lynx had been since early in the first period. But then Noel hit two straight buckets. Han praised his team for staying composed after, after the Lynx rallied. We talked all year about the understanding to not to get too high or too low, he said. I think in a situation like that, it helps. We stayed composed and continued to make plays, and that's what happened down the stretch. Kuhl finished with 12 points, and Bo Chamberlain had 8. McKinney led Webster City with 23 points. 
After the game, Kuhl relished how far the healing program has come since his sophomore season two years ago. We were 6-18, he said. It's a complete flip of that year. Now moving on uh, away from sports, headline is Sioux City Potter makes tri-state shaped trinket trays. Over the last two years, Shaley Hannah Cohn, a Sioux City Potter, has created around 500 clay trinket trays in the shapes of Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. The trays, which she stamps with local area codes, zip codes, or the word home, are exclusively sold at Sioux City Gifts, a shop on Pierce Street that sells the wares of various local artisans. Hannah Cohn said the trays are among the most popular items she makes. It is a fun gift to send to someone so they remember where their roots are, she said of the trays, which have been used to store loose change and hold party dips and candles. Hannah Cohn discovered her love for making things out of clay when she was a student at East High School. She worked at Hy-Vee in the bakery and meat department for 20 years before making pottery her full-time job in 2014. Hannah Cohn owns Shady Grove Pottery. Hannah Cohn encourages other artists to never give up on their dreams. A framed felt letter letterboard sitting on a wooden shelf in her home studio beside functional stoneware fittingly states choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life hannah cone's days are spent in her bright studio throwing or hand building bowls mugs vases wall hangings decorative pieces recu pottery and more i might sit down and make two dozen mugs and throw those forms and then they have to be set up to be leather hard before you can handle them without distorting them said hannah cone who could spend half an hour to an hour forming a mug depending on how decorative it is then there's drying bisque firing glazing and glaze firing Hannah Cohn says she draws her inspiration from the colors and textures of nature. Her favorite pieces are functional. I think my favorite part is that it can be useful every day. If it's that favorite coffee mug that you're searching for, he, she said. It's fun to stay in the studio and work and just do whatever you want. But on the artistic side, you still have to design something that is going to appeal to other people. Hannah Cohn's trinket trays in the forms of the tri-states have become popular additions to gift baskets. She said Iowa is the best-selling state, followed by South Dakota. After rolling out a slab of clay, Hannah Cohn cuts out each state with a cookie cutter and then uses an anvil to shape the tray. Although the trays are on the smaller side, measuring roughly 4 by 6 inches, and aren't as detailed as some of her other pieces, challenges do arise when making them. The clay has memory. It always wants to go back to that original form that you rolled it out into, she said. If they dry too fast, or even if there's a particle in the clay that it doesn't like, it's going to warp. Smile with Miles, owner of Iconic Sioux City Bar, says consistency is key. Is Miles in a place where everybody knows your name? Probably, but its owners will also sell you a ceiling tile with your name, favorite sports team, or pretty much any type of message at all. According to Brett Leas, that's the way Miles Inn has, has been since his parents, Denny and Julia Leas, purchased the venerable 2622 Leach Avenue Sports Pub Bar more than a decade ago. To be fair, Miles Inn has been a friendly place since John Miles opened it as a convenience store in 1925 before transitioning it into a bar sometime in the 1940s. There is a lot of history here, Leah said, that's for sure. He isn't kidding. A framed black and white photo of John Miles and his wife hangs on the wall. So what does a sign say behind Mr. and Mrs. Miles in the picture? Remember Pearl Harbor.
which is nice since Miles Inn has been selected Siouxland's Choice for Favorite Non-Fourth Street Bar. And that doesn't surprise Leas, who says Miles Inn's customer base ranges in age from 20-something to 80-something. What keeps keeping what keeps people coming back generation after generation is the unpretentious decor, extensive beer and drink menu, and a popular sandwich item called the Charlie Boy. Legend has it that the Charlie Boy was named after Charlie Miles, son of the original owner. In case you didn't know, a Charlie Boy is a loose meat tavern sandwich made extra peppery. This makes it the perfect accompaniment to the big schooner of beer. We never get rid of we could never get rid of the Charlie Boy, Leah said. Not only is it original to Miles Inn, but the Loose Meat Tavern was invented in Sioux City. However, that doesn't mean the current owner of Miles Inn hasn't expanded the Charlie Boy universe. Nowadays, a customer can get his Charlie Boy in the traditional hamburger bun or hot dog bun. It can be the topping on a plate of nachos or served inside of a bowl of chili. And Leah said Miles Inn goes through a ton of Charlie Boys, especially around the holidays. Around Thanksgiving or Christmas, people will come home to Sioux City to see families and friends, he explained. Any visit homes requires a schooner and a Charlie Boy from Miles Inn, which is perhaps the secret of Leah's success. At Miles Inn, we're not trying to reinvent because people seem to like us the way we are, he maintained. We don't want to mess things up. Briarcliff University Expanding Neighborhood Beyond Its Campus Briarcliff University's Charged Food and Brew has a new barista who knows how to make a smooth and refreshing Red Bull infusion. Which is good to know, since a smooth and refreshing Red Bull infusion is actually the only drink Patrick Jacobson Schulte has been taught to make. Wait, isn't Jake's, Jacobson Schulte also Briarcliff's interim president? So, what is he doing, taking smoothie and cappuccino orders during a morning rush behind a coffee kiosk counter? After I started as Briarcliff's interim president in July of 2022, I knew I wouldn't be happy behind a desk and away from the students, he said. This is why Jacobson Schulte prefers to be seen on campus at sporting events or, on occasion, volunteering his time as a barista in training at BCU's Charged Food and Brood. Jacobson Schulte already has a fan in Patrick Gasson Jr., a BCU graduate student who is also a defensive back on the Chargers football team. You always see him around the school, Gasson said. He's always approachable and friendly. Perhaps it is because of the university's interim president that Briarcliff University was named 2023 Siouxland's Choice for Higher Education. Known as Patrick, or PJS, to faculty and students, Jacobson Schulte is originally from Lakeville, Minnesota. He joined Briarcliff in June 2021 as its Vice President of Finance and serving as its Executive Vice President in preparation for the interim position. When I came to Briarcliff, I wanted to improve our communi community both on and off campus, he said. For the latter, Jacobson Schulte walked door-to-door -door in the residential neighborhoods that surround BCU. To the homeowners, we weren't thought of as neighbors, he explained. Instead, we were simply thought of as a school on the top of a big hill. Making the college more neighborly, Jacobson Schulte invited residents to grab a cup of coffee from the charged food and brew. People thought our coffee kiosk was only open to students, he said. In fact, it has always been open to everyone. 
Jacobs and Schulte even made sure that the BCU outdoor Christmas tree could be seen and enjoyed throughout the extended neighborhood. More importantly was creating a community among the BCU students who were coming across the country and even around the world. Gassant, who was originally from Lawrenceville, Georgia, admitted he felt a bit of culture shock. First of all, First of all, Iowa is a heck of a lot colder than Georgia, he said. That was the first thing I noticed. Despite the sometimes frigid temps, Gassant immediately warmed up to Midwestern hospitality. In the dorms, you could knock on any door and make a friend, he noted with a smile. That was pretty cool. Gassant even encouraged his younger brother, Winston, to attend college at BCU. There are bigger schools out there, Gassant said, but they're probably not as friendly as Briarcliff. Certainly, that's music to the ears of Jacobs and Schulte. We've already taken steps to improve the educational side of BCU, he said. Now, we are working on the quality of life at BCU. So, does that mean Jacobs and Schulte will finally expand his barista repertoire beyond Red Bull infusion? Patrick did pretty well today, charged uh, food and brew manager Faye Weitzel said. Next time, we'll have him make hot drinks. How an iconic candy store became a tourist destination spot. Stephanie Conyers would soon be prepping for Easter, her fourth major holiday as a manager of Palmer's Old Time Candy Shop. I started my job last summer, made it through Halloween, Christmas, and Valentine's Day, she said with a smile. Barring a St. Patrick's Day rush for emerald-colored sweets, Conyers should be fine until Peter Cottontail comes looking for a candy fix come April 9th. Yet, Old Palmer's Old Time Candy Shop and the adjacent Palmer Specialty Foods is more than simply a holiday stopover. Indeed, Weekender readers named the 405 Wesley Parkway store to be Siouxland's choice for favorite destination, tourist destination. This is because the Palmer Candy Company has been part of Sioux City ever since Edward Cook Palmer moved to, to town in 1878. Starting with the wholesale fruit business, the industrious Palmer family began making fancy hand-dipped box chocolates, penny candies, gumdrops, and marshmallows from a four-story factory around the turn of the 20th century. Always seeking innovation, Palmer Candy Company jumped at the chance to manufacture its own candy bar, and the legendary Twin Bing was born. Consisting of two round, chewy, cherry-filled nougats, Coated with chopped peanuts and chocolate, the Twin Bing has been made by hand at the Palmer Candy Company since 1923. That's right, the Twin Bing is turning the Big 100 this year. Not too many candies have remained popular for a century, but Palmer Candy actually manufactured two of them. In 1956, Palmer purchased the candy division of the Johnson Biscuit Company, which is included the already well-established La Fama chocolates that had been around since 1919. Uh-huh, the LaFamas are actually the older sibling of the top-selling Twin Bings, but bet you didn't know that. However, Conyers is quickly becoming a connoisseur of Bings. LaFamas are all things sweet, decadent, and chocolatey. Indeed, she and her crew try to taste test as much of their merchandise as possible. We have to know what the candy tastes like for the sake of our customers, she said. Ah, uh, yeah, it's all about the customers. We totally believe that. On a more serious note, Conyers and assistant manager Monica Walden do go to national trade shows to see what is trending in the world of candy and specialty foods. Our customers want the new and the unexpected, Conyers said. If I see something food-related is trending on TikTok, we'll be getting calls right away. What is amazing for an old-time school business like Palmer's? According to Conyers, 
Palmer's retail store remains as relevant as ever. I saw a prisoner around the holidays, she said. If a person came back to Sioux City for family on Christmas, a visit to the Palmer's old-time candy shop would always be in the plans. Sure enough, the customer would likely leave the store with a big box of Bing's. Or what about the traveler who wanted to discover the tastes of Sioux City? Well, that can what can represent Sioux City better than chocolate-covered pieces of nuggety goodness? The Twin Bing has become synonymous with Sioux City, Connor said. I think that's why Palmer's old-time Candy Shop is considered a local tourist destination. We'll now move to Dear Abby, our first letter. My husband is 6 feet 6 inches tall. My 19-year-old son is taller at 6 feet 7 inches. They loathe being asked how tall they are. There are times when they are proud of their height and others when they have felt self-conscious because it can be uncomfortable to tower over others. Often the question is asked in a tone that conveys the person perceives them as some kind of freak of nature. They have been told they must have really been well-fed growing up, or the commenters are so glad they never had to pay their food bills. And, of course, the assumption is that they both played basketball, which they both did, but imagine if they didn't or hated the game. They have it they have had it with these insensitive intrusive comments. While I, someone of average height, think a commenter may just be trying to make conversation and height is a respected attribute, it, it is nonetheless offensive. My son or husband would never ask anyone in retort, how short are you or how much do you weigh? Why do people think that questions about how tall someone is doesn't fall into the same category? What's an appropriate response when the person asking makes you out to be some kind of freak? Sign, tall person, spoke sympathizer. And Abby responds, Sometimes people, without intending to be rude, blurt out the first thing that comes into their heads, and height is hard to miss. This isn't the first time I have been told that some tall individuals are self-conscious about it. A social group called Tall Clubs International was formed many years ago so they could socialize without feeling self-conscious. Today's generations are taller by several inches than they were 100 years ago, and tourists visiting European museums have been shocked at the diminutive size of the suits of armor. While all of us can have a bad day, I think the best way for your son and your husband to handle these questions would be to hang on to their sense of humor and answer them honestly. Dear Abby, my man and I have been together for two years. He has his own place and I have mine. We really enjoy each other's company. I have a 13-year-old daughter. The issue is we haven't been out on a real date since we've been together. I understand the pandemic had an impact on this. I feel at some point something's got to give. I have mentioned it to him a few times already. What's a woman like me to do? Signed, Homebound in Upstate New York. And Abby's response. If you want a mate who is a self-starter, this person isn't it. A woman like you should make the plans. Tell her man where you are going and what you'll be doing and what time to pick her up for that date. If, after two years of expressing what you would like, your message still hasn't gotten through, please understand this will probably be the pattern for the rest of your relationship. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 28th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.